0: Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, years ago when media critics called attention to ways corporate media's profit-driven nature negatively impacts the news, lots of people would say, but what about the Internet? Nowadays, folks seem to see more clearly that constraints on a news outlet's content have little to do with whether it's on paper or online. But who owns it? Who resources it? To whom is it accountable? You'll see the phrase crisis of journalism newly circulating these days, but one thing hasn't changed— If we don't ask different questions about what we need from journalism, we will arrive at the same old unsatisfactory responses. Victor Picard is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg School for Communication and author of Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society. We'll talk to him about the crisis of journalism and its future. That's coming up, but first a quick look back at recent press. U.S. prosecutors have indicted Florida-based journalist Timothy Burke for uncovering and sharing unaired portions of a Fox News interview between Tucker Carlson and Kanye West, in which West spouted some bizarro, racist, and anti-Semitic stuff. As reported by Kevin Gastola at The Dissenter, Burke obtained the video by following a link to live video feeds. He didn't need a username or a password to access them. They were not encrypted. Nevertheless, Fox claimed they were hacked, and the FBI raided Burke's home, took computers and electronic devices containing information he was working on for other stories, and he was charged with engaging in a conspiracy to defraud the U.S. government, violating a federal wiretapping law, and committing multiple offenses in violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. The Freedom of the Press Foundation condemned the charges, noting that seizing news-gathering materials from a journalist is a prior restraint that stops the journalist from publishing news, which is why it almost always violates the Privacy Protection Act and the DOJ's own policies. The government response has been that Burke, like Julian Assange, by their definition, is not a journalist because, well, they say he isn't, because they don't define journalism as an act of collecting and disseminating information that is in the public interest, but as joining some sort of card-carrying club whose membership they can police. This unfolding case has implications for all kinds of people, cop watchers, whistleblowers, But if legit reporters think they aren't in it, they're probably thinking wrong. As Gastola writes, this prosecution sends a clear signal to the news media that prosecutors will not hesitate to aid a powerful or influential corporation in suppressing investigative journalism. And all of this to protect Kanye West? Longtime health reporter Catherine Foxhall writes for FAIR.org about how the public's right to know is being affected by gag orders that prohibit government employees, among others, from speaking freely to reporters. It's called censorship by PIO for the Public Information Office to which media inquiries are routinely directed. That forced notification of higher-ups is enough to keep many workers from talking about anything that might displease the boss. A former head of the Centers for Disease Control said that controls on the agency got tighter with each White House, starting with Ronald Reagan, because even though tightening access was often politically driven, there seemed to be no adverse political impact. And that, Foxhall says, has to do with the fact that though journalism organizations have been fighting against such controls for years, reporters themselves often don't disclose the hurdles they come up against or let readers know that they were unable to talk to lots of folks who might have had something revelatory to say. But part of the work of journalism is not just bringing stories to light, but making a story of the concerted resistance of the powerful to that effort. And finally, if you want to deny a problem, the first step is not to measure it. That's been big media and their federal enablers' strategy for decades, since the FCC suspended the requirement that broadcasters provide equal employment opportunity information. The FCC recently voted to reinstate the collection of data on race, ethnicity, and gender of broadcasters' employees, providing some level of transparency about whether those broadcasters are serving the public interest in terms of viewpoint diversity and racial equity. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. The fact that every news program is peppered with advertising, even on public broadcasting, that the newspaper you hope will give a fair accounting of, for example, economic inequality, will bring you that story next to an ad for $2,000 shoes. The fact that the cost of learning about the world means sifting through mountains of media designed to get you to buy stuff – via outlets that are themselves owned by massive profit-driven corporations, well, for many of us, that's just how it is. But it isn't how it is everywhere, or how it's always been, or how it has to be. Changing things isn't just a matter of policy or law, but of reimagining the role of journalism in our public life. Victor Picard is professor of media policy and political economy at the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg School for Communication, where he co-directs the Media Inequality and Change Center. He's the author, most recently, of Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society, from Oxford University Press. He joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Victor Picard. Thanks so much for having me, Jeanine. Well, I guess I'll ask you to start by just outlining what you see as the core troubles with what we've got now, the current media landscape. What sets it on a course that runs afoul of democracy or democratic aspirations, as I say?
1: Well, there are so many troubling signs right now. It's difficult to know exactly what to focus on. But to speak in really broad strokes, I would point to the massive recent layoffs, especially in our newspaper industry. The L.A. Times recently cut over 22 percent of its newsroom. Before that, The Washington Post had cut about 10 percent of its employees. And these, of course, are both billionaire-owned newspapers. Until recently, they were considered the success stories in our new uh, very you know, challenging digital age for, for journalism But I think this all points to a bigger picture. In many ways, what we're seeing are the continuing death throes of an industry that's reached a point of no return. And if we turn back to 2005, and of course, at that point, it's not as if we were living through a perfect golden age for journalism. But since 2005, we've seen about two thirds of our newspaper journalists and about a third of newspapers disappear. Um, And this is creating... Vast and expanding news deserts where tens of millions of Americans have access to little or no local news media whatsoever, and it's creating all kinds of problems for any semblance of democratic self-governance. And of course, when we're talking about the newspaper industry, it's not as if it's just about nostalgia, but it happens to be the primary source for most original news and information and original reporting that permeates through our entire news media ecosystem. So when we lose newspapers, we lose local journalism and that's a tragedy for all of us.
0: I think many folks might think, "Oh, I don't even read the newspaper, but the work that newspapers do then shows up on television and on radio and you know, you maybe it's the behind the scenes investigation, the actual reporting and you think, well, I don't read the paper so it doesn't affect me, but of course it obviously affects the whole climate of what we know, what we know about what the government is doing, what we know about is is happening around the world, right? So you don't have to read a paper to be to be affected by this.
1: Exactly. I mean, even hearing you know word of mouth information from our neighbors, or g- gleaning uh, you know commentary from various social media feeds, or looking at cable television. If you listen closely, most of the original news information still traces back to the beleaguered newspaper industry. And of course, things like, you know, what's happening with the local school board or city hall or our state legislatures. These are all beats that traditionally and historically have been covered by newspaper reporters. And those beats are rapidly disappearing.
0: Well, I do think that folks can see if they're looking the layoffs and the closing of outlets. And as you mentioned, lots of people live in kind of flyover towns you know where they can get news from the nearest big city hundreds of miles away but there's nothing local and serious uh, in a recent piece with NYU's Rodney Benson you take issue though with what some folks have presented as the the savior as a way forward namely benevolent billionaires
1: that's right and you know there's long been this kind of wishful thinking that okay if the advertising model for supporting journalism is no longer viable. And if people aren't paying enough for their news and information, then maybe we can look to these so-called benevolent billionaires to swoop in and save the day. And at best, they were always expected to maybe save a newspaper here and there. Um, But even those hopes are proving to be ill-founded. And even billionaires face Various kinds of sticker shock when they're losing tens of millions of dollars a year on their pet projects. So I don't think, I and mean, this was never a systemic fix to begin with. Right. But I don't think that they can even save, you know, uh, some of our major newspapers as was previously hoped.
0: Well, let's turn to the the forward looking. I guess um, you talk about non reformist reforms, which I I love that language. Um, and I and then I'll ask you to kind of say what you mean there. But I also wanted to just kind of throw in there, are there lessons or models from other countries that could be meaningful here?
1: I do think it's always useful to look internationally and also historically, you know, some of our own experiments that we tried here in the U.S. to expand our imagination about what's possible to glean best practices. And I think at the very least we can point to some, uh, actually many democracies, most democracies around the planet fund robust public broadcasting systems, public media systems, which I think is always a good conversation starter to at least begin imagining what might our public media system look like if we start living up to global norms and actually funding our, our systems accordingly, but then also to look at how countries like, you know, Norway and Sweden of the Western and Northern European countries are directly funding their newspaper industries or at least indirectly subsidizing them. And I think these are all things that we could start thinking about, especially as it's so clear that there simply is not a commercial future for many kinds of journalism, especially local journalism. So we have to start thinking outside of the market and really pushing for a paradigm shift when we see journalism as not just a commodity whose worth is determined by its profitability on the market, but rather as a public service upon which democracy depends.
0: What do you mean when you talk about reforms as being non-reformist? What are you getting
1: at there? It's, it's kind of a wonky phrase, but what I'm really trying to get at is, you know, we've often heard of this dichotomy between reform versus revolution. You know, like, can we radically... Change our core systems uh, overnight, or is this more of a gradual reformist process that we you know make small tweaks as we can? And there's actually a middle road where I think we can focus on these structural reforms in the short term, with an eye towards a more radical distant horizon where we're really seeking to transform the system. And this is sounding a little bit abstract, but like to give a few examples, if we Today, recognize that we need to salvage the journalism that's still being practiced. So we would try to transition these failing commercial models into nonprofit or at least low-profit institutions, with an eye towards a more ambitious project where we really try to build out a new public media system. So a system that's not reliant on benevolent billionaires or other forms of private capital, but instead is reliant on public financing that's federally guaranteed, but locally owned and controlled and governed. And I think that's what we need to place on the horizon to have this sort of long term, might take decades to get there, but to really have that as our North Star, instead of constantly reacting to whatever problem is arising at the moment.
0: Uh, I like that you mentioned that you don't have to only look overseas. You can also look to our own history. Some people may remember that public broadcasting in this country began with some lovely language about providing a forum for controversy and debate, and for including voices that would otherwise be unheard, specifically that commercial networks didn't want to air. So in other words, public media weren't intended to be a more edumacated version, you know, a less shouty version of the same perspectives we got from commercial media. They, they didn't write the Public Broadcasting Act so we could get masterpiece theater. Um, but we know it lost its way with a congressional short lease for funding. So now we have PBS programs bringing us stories about weapons while being sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Um, You've already started to tell us about your vision of what public media could look like. I'd ask you to expand on that. But also, we know that as Americans, we're told to hate the government. Private is always better. Um, As soon as you talk about government funding or state funding for broadcasting, people talk about state censorship as though there were no such thing as corporate censorship. You know, Um, but but talk a little bit more about what your vision of public media could be.
1: That's right. And, and, and to get there, I, I will hit on a couple of points you just mentioned in passing, which is this notion that the government isn't involved in our media system. That's right. It's a libertarian fantasy. I mean, it, the government is always involved in our news and information systems. But the question is, how should it be involved? Should it be serving corporate interests or should it be serving public interest? And that's really, as a democratic society, a question we should always be grappling with and trying to design our news and information systems so that they are privileging democracy over profit imperatives. And if you look at our history, public media subsidies are as American as apple pie, going back to the postal system, which initially was primarily a newspaper delivery infrastructure that we heavily subsidized. And today's dollars, it would be tens of billions of dollars towards disseminating news and information to far-flung communities across the country. The same was true for broadcasting, for the Internet that came about through massive public subsidies. And certainly, you know, looking at our promise or lost promise of public broadcasting, that was always meant to be an alternative, a structural alternative to the commercial system, to this systemic market failure that's always there with commercial media outlets. So I think we need to recover that initial Mm -hmm. ideal and really try to not just build out and and redesign our public infrastructures, but entirely reimagine that. We could be using post offices, libraries, public broadcasting stations. These all could be outlets to serve as these public media centers where every community across the country would have its own anchor institution of newsrooms that look like the communities they purportedly serve, and make sure they're owned and controlled by journalists and community members themselves. So these, this is the kind of non-reformist reform mm-hmm. vision that I think we should be working towards. Again, it's not happening tomorrow or even next year, but that's something we need to work towards.
0: It's interesting, the, the idea that government somehow is not involved um, in the, yeah. the media that we have. I seem to remember Bob McChesney saying something like, you know, when, when the government gives out broadcast licenses, they aren't setting rules, they're picking winners.
1: That's right. Yeah, I mean, those licenses are essentially, you know, monopolistic privileges for these corporations to use the public airwaves. And that's a tremendously valuable public resource that we all should be able to benefit from. And, you know, this is just one example of where we really need to take media out of the market. We need to separate capitalism and journalism, which was always a very troubling union, to say the least.
0: And then, of course, in an election year, when you start to see those election ads, you have to remember that this is politicians and political parties just dumping money into media outlets for political advertising.
1: That's right. It's essentially a payola system, pay pay to play. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're constantly being bombarded with these kinds of corporate messages when we're not discussing the climate crisis. We're not discussing growing inequality and so many, so many crises facing us today. And that's ideally what a publicly owned and controlled. So not just public in name only, but actually serving the public A system based on those logics, I think, could try to live up to these democratic ideals.
0: Well, I so appreciate projects like the New Jersey Civic Information Consortium, you know, that shift the focus, as we're talking about, that shift the focus from shoring up existing outlets toward asking whether the community's information needs are being met. You know, I, I, I love yep. that language means something, you know, and that is a categorically different project.
1: Yeah, that's exactly how it should be framed, based on needs, not the profit imperatives of a small number of investors and advertisers and media owners. And I'm glad that you mentioned the New Jersey project, because this is a proof of concept that we're seeing replicated in other states as well. Similar programs taking off in California, most recently Wisconsin and Illinois, uh, DC is looking at a news voucher program. So there are all these exciting projects and experiments that show that government can indeed play a very productive role in guaranteeing the level of news and information that all members of society should have access to. It's a way of empowering local communities, and I really think we need to see more of this. But of course, we also need to scale it up beyond just state governments to a federal government level that can really guarantee this sort of universal service ethic to all members of society.
0: Well, and I would encourage folks to go back and listen to an interview that I did with Mike Rispoli from Free Press specifically about that New Jersey project. It wasn't like a foundation coming in and saying, let's do this. It involved early formative input from a whole range of community groups. Like it really is a a bottom-up conversation. And I think that also reflects a recognition that it's the already marginalized, economically and otherwise marginalized, that suffer currently the most from, from, from media distortions and from the problems we're discussing with media. So this way forward is not just, and I appreciate that you're saying that it takes time, but it's not just an end goal. The process itself is, is something good, I think.
1: That's absolutely right. And, and Mike Rispoli knows better than anyone I'm aware of that this really needs to begin with community organizing. It must be a grassroots effort. It can't be dropped in. As, as important as the foundations are in trying to feed this growing nonprofit sector, we really have to make sure we're not just decommercializing media, but we're also democratizing Media, And I think those kinds of efforts that begin with local communities making sure that they're involved at the ground floor is so key. And I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic we're going to be seeing more of these experiments take root across the country.
0: And then once you see it working, you know, as you say, proof of concept, there's an imagination effort that needs to happen. And I think people are tired and beleaguered and have other things to do, you know, so to have a project happen and see, oh, yeah, that can happen that is a tremendous uh, addition of energy towards making it happen in other places and other times because people see that it is genuinely possible and they won't be, you know, throwing their energy down a hole.
1: That's so true. And, you know, so much of this is, as you say, about really expanding our imagination about what is possible. We've been so conditioned to think that if the market doesn't support something, then it's just going to have to wither away as unfortunate as that might be. And these kinds of experiments show there is something we can do about it. We do have agency. We can intervene. These are political choices. And we can choose to have a much more democratic media system that serves us all.
0: Well, let me ask you, finally, it might sound a little bit of field, but I don't think so. The subhead on the book is confronting the misinformation society. And, you know, we sometimes say it fair that if our purpose was to make the New York Times suddenly much better. Well, then, you know, we would just pull up the covers because that's not happening. But, but we do think that we help people understand how to read the New York Times and not to be affected or influenced by it in exactly the same way that they might have. And so I just wanted to ask you, where does media literacy fit into this. It's not a it's not a no but it's a it's a yes and yeah because at the same time we need to be helping folks navigate the system that we've got so that they can see the omissions and the need for better.
1: That's exactly right. It needs to always be an essential tool in our toolbox for really trying to decipher the predictable patterns in our heavily commercialized media system. And I think, you know, that is a way of building up agency. It's not going to structurally transform the entire system. But I think if we understand the structural critique, that we see the political economy behind these news outlets, we understand what are the commercial logics that are driving them to tell these kinds of stories and not others, to talk to these people and not other people. I do think that that is so important for us to do. And that's certainly what I've dedicated my career to doing, and I'll continue doing my best to try to really cultivate this critical consumption of our news media.
0: We've been speaking with Victor Picard. The book "Democracy Without Journalism" is available from Oxford University Press, and you can find the piece "Saving the News Media Means Moving Beyond the Benevolence of Billionaires" on theconversation.com, as well as Common Dreams and and various other places. Victor Picard, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin.
1: Thank you, Janine. It was so great talking to you.
0: And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find decades of shows and transcripts on our website, fair.org. The website is also the place to learn about and subscribe to our monthly newsletter extra. And it's the place to show deeply appreciated support for the show, if you are able and so inclined. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin.